Good morning. We're, we're turning in our Bibles now to it's an extraordinary psalm, uh, Psalm 132. Uh, it's, it's a this sort of psalm where you could invest hours in it and you feel like you're just scratching the surface as you do so. I think you'll know what I mean as I'm working through this together with you. Uh, psalm 132, in many ways, is a messianic psalm. And you can divide it into two significant parts, 1 through 10, and then verse 11 through 18. It's part of the Songs of Ascent that began, of course, with Psalm 120, and it leads up through Psalm 134. And again, we should be completing the two-year study in the psalm somewhere in the Labor Day weekend time period. But today, what I'd like to do is to delve into the depths of this to the degree possible, as time allows, and read, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 10, these words. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of, of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, found it in the fields of Shear. Let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So we're going to explore those verses and more as we, as we look to our Lord together now in prayer. And Father, as we're coming into your presence, we are mindful that we are here exclusively to focus upon you all about you. Our direct gaze is upon you. Thinking about your infinite, your eternal, your unchangeable nature. But thinking about how in your sovereign strategy you sent Christ into the world to die for our sins when we put our faith exclusively in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, we're awed by the it is finished statement uttered on the cross. And then the three day later reality of Christ being raised from the grave to validate all that he said and all that he did. So we praise you and we thank you. And now we see as we explore this messianic psalm together how this directly links time past, time present, time future. 
makes sense of life globally and yet makes sense of life personally. So Father, if there's anyone watching online at this moment, anyone in any of the services that is struggling with, where are you? Why am I going through what I am going through? Why are my circumstances, my family, my job, in the situation, the context, the circumstances, what it is that we're going through right now, I pray that you will break in, reveal yourself in extraordinary ways. We're going to stay focused on you. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. And we're praying these things to again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Chuck Colson recounted a time when he was asked to go to speak at San Quentin Prison. Now, we're told that there are roughly 2,200 inmates there at the time in which his visit had been planned out. More than 300 had signed up, he wrote, for our prison fellowship chapel service. And I was excited about the extraordinary opportunity to share the gospel in this rough place. But just days before our visit, officials uncovered a, um, a setting where weapons and a potentially violent plot had been developed. The prison was immediately locked down and the inmates confined to their cells for 24 hours a day. So when we arrived to share the gospel, the lockdown was still in effect, and I asked if I could at least walk the blocks, five tiers of small, thick-barred cells, narrow catwalks along the outer courts, <coughs> guards and towers along the perimeter could keep their rifles trained on every cell, he wrote. Colson states, well, usually prisons are raucous with the sounds of television, shouting, scuffling feet, clanging steel doors. But on this day, on this day, silence. We went on to the chapel where a group of prison fellowship volunteers and honor camp inmates were waiting, and they were mostly Christians. I was glad to see them, of course, but can I say I was disappointed? This had been my opportunity to evangelistically share the gospel to hardened offenders. I felt like I was preaching to the choir. So I struggled with my lack of enthusiasm. Maybe I'll just give a short 10-minute devotional. I thought, I can't really give my heart so extensively to this crowd despite all the ways that I had prepared. But then I noticed a video camera in the far end of the room. Hmm. 
Perhaps this is being recorded in the, for the chapel library. Maybe I better give it my all. And so as I started to speak, spurred on by the eye of the camera, I suddenly felt the Holy Spirit's conviction. And I remembered I was called to communicate God's word, no matter if it was one inmate or thousands that were listening. Well, I spoke with more and more fervor, teaching the gospel, explaining to the inmates about the Christ who loved them, even in that stronghold of violence and despair. But, to be honest, afterwards, I, I mentioned to the chaplain how disappointed I was that I wasn't able to give my message to the men on lockdown. All this time of preparation, all this time of planning, and it seems as though right at the very verge of impact, God said no. Has God ever said no to you? For you see, as you'll note in the insert for today, Sometimes, sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says wait. Sometimes God says yes. But what I want to say to you at this point is that when God says no, it's because he has something better in mind. What we're about to examine is, in poetic form, a story by which, in which David had been told by God, no. For you see, David had incredible plans. He had personalized them, yet they were to be all about wanting to honor God. You've been that way? You've got plans. You've got dreams. And you've given them to God. But for whatever reason, at this juncture in life, it's as if God seems to be saying, no. What I want to do is to draw out two significant parts to this extraordinary sum. The first part is found in verse 1 down through verse 10. We're going to be considering what I'll call the, the sovereign strategy here that God has globally and yet for us personally. And out of 1 through 10, as we consider God's strategic plan for humanity, I want to begin by noting with you now what I'll call the permanent dwelling place that he, God, has chosen. That, of course, is Jerusalem. So you pick it up now in verse 1, and what captures your attention from the get-go is that this was a song that was used to um, inspire the Israelites in the dedication of the temple under the leadership of Solomon. And yet here is Solomon now, and he is not taking credit. Instead, he begins in verse 1 with the words, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, 
all the hardships he endured. It was David who had harnessed the resources for the construction of the temple. It was David who you might recall reading about in 2 Samuel chapter 6, who danced out in the streets of Jerusalem, leading the procession as the Ark of the Covenant was making its way into, into Jerusalem itself, and he did so as king. Humility here, Solomon's. He is acknowledging, even though I oversaw the construction of the temple in this dedication time period, I want to give credit where credit is due. My father David was the one who had the strategic plan in mind. But you and I know the story. It was in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Don't underestimate the idea that the Lord is with you in this, in this unfolding drama of redemption. Because now, next generation, and Solomon is considering the no that God delivered to David, and now the no has turned into the yes for Solomon to oversee the construction thereof. Remember, O Lord, to David's favor, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, thinking of the wars as well as the time of peace, from, from Saul of old to the issues with Absalom, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Mighty one of Jacob? You see, Jacob was the one who made a vow before God and established a pillar in the Genesis account in Bethel, wanting to make absolutely certain that God was being honored. And now here is Solomon drawing historically from that event and applying it personally to his life situation. How he swore to the Lord, vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And now as he's thinking about his father, this is what his father was all about. His father had a strategic plan in mind with regard to the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. I will not enter my house, get into my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. Here it comes now for us. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And what fascinates me is that in the Hebrew, dwelling place is in the plural. He wants to be able to emphasize that there is something extraordinary here, not singular here, something extraordinary here that needs to be drawn out. He is talking about the construction of the temple. No, he's got plans for God. And maybe you have plans for God. Now, 
Normally, when I think about my favorite theologians, Woody Allen does not come to mind. But Allen did say that if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. And you see, David has told God not only David's plans, there's almost a sense where David is outlining for God God's plan. You ever do that for God? You see? And then God uses the prophet Nathan to say, no. But as Chuck Colson and the San Quentin experience would find, when God says no, it's because he has something better in mind. And so now you and I, we have taken a tour, and we are in Jerusalem, and we have now reached that point where we're looking at the southern temple mount, which appears on the screen. And you look at me, and I look at you, and we begin to think about the history surrounding the mount. Mount Moriah comes to mind. My word. 2000 BC, Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac making their climb. We read about it in Genesis 22. Fast forward a thousand years, and there was Solomon's temple, first temple, but in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came along and destroyed the temple. Not to be outdone then, around 720 to 716 B.C., a group of Jews began construction of what you and I might describe as the second temple under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Further development, reconstruction by Herod around up to 70 AD. We're looking about at the ruins at this point, and we're considering the stones that are there, and we're thinking about God's dwelling place. And then you look at me, and I look at you, and we nod because we look off into the distance, and there's the Dome of the Rock. How do you explain this to be a permanent dwelling place for Yahweh when there is such competition for the land that we are exploring together. But there's more to the story, isn't there? There's a need for a third temple. In the 18 benedictions of the Jews, there is this plea. Be pleased, Lord our God, with thy people Israel and their prayer. Restore the worship of thy most holy sanctuary, quote, unquote. And then in 1948, while all other nations of Israel's time period ceased to exist, Israel regained statehood. You're stunned. On June 7th of 1967, Israeli occupation of the Temple Mount. And on March 2nd of 1998, there is this request for young babies to be trained for service in what? The Temple. Because quietly behind the scenes, plans, preparations are underway for the Third Temple. 
question. To be built next to the Dome of the Rock? We ask. The temple that was on David's mind and heart was the where the presence of God was to be sensed in the fullness of all. The presence of God. Jonathan Edwards, ah, my favorite theologian, wrote, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Never was so full of love nor so full of joy, yet so full of distress as it was then to cleanse hearts in heaven, but to convict hearts, hell, when God is in the midst. And there God is in the midst. And now Solomon is using this psalm as the opportunity then to stir the hearts in the dedication of the temple. And you're up then to verses 6 and 7. Hmm. He takes us back to the settings where David would have tended sheep when he says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Ephrathah? Look again at, very carefully at verse 6, and you say to yourself, I've heard about Ephrathah. That was the region where Jacob had buried Rachel. Ephrathah. It's the region where Boaz had married Ruth. Ephrathah. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So little in the eyes of the population, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, pertaining to the, the Messiah to, to come, but only to be quoted again in the Newer Testament, pertaining to Jesus, who would be of the line of David. We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair, Jair, Kiryath Jair. Let us go to the dwelling place. It's on his mind. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And so now our, our, our eyes seize hold of, of Ephrathah's fields that appears on the screen. And as we look very carefully at the fields on the screen, we can see where shepherding would take place. And we realize this is where David was honed in his leadership capabilities. He would learn how to shepherd a nation well. It would be there he'd be called in to be anointed king in place of, in place of Saul. Saul, unto David. And when God says no, it's because he has something better in mind. You're up to verse 8. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. And you read that and you say to yourself, I've heard of that before. I remember reading of that before. Well, in Second Chronicles of chapter 6, this is exactly what Solomon had referenced when he was dedicating the temple. Arise now. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And all that he's doing is that he's taking us back to what would have been written about in the book of Numbers. This was a military term. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. Well, David had so resourced 
the priests and everybody for the dedication that he was not even physically present to be able to experience. That Solomon now, wanting to honor his father, would write in verses 9 and 10, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, let your saints be about for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. And what's interesting in Hebrew is that the word for anointed one is Messiah. Messiah. In other words, what Solomon realizes at this point is that there is a messianic plan that's unfolding. And we're going to have to simply trust God for it, even when we don't see everything immediately at hand. Pastor John Anbuchekwa, he's talking about watching the 2021 NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game, which is what a good pastor would be doing. And between Baylor and Gonzaga, I want you to know. He writes, I was watching the game intently, texting my friends as I watched. And there came a time when Baylor took out one of its star players. Gonzaga started to make a run, and I was ticked off, as a good pastor would be at that point. I was in the group chat saying, I can't believe that they did that. Things are going to turn out bad. And my friend said, what are you talking about? He's back in. And I realized there was a lag in my internet connection. As the game went on, the leg started to get worse. The, le the announcer's voice would say, and he made the shot. But on my screen, the guy would be dribbling. And then he would shoot it, and the shot went in, and I realized, ah, oh, there's this leg in my connection. I was so anxious about really wanting us to win that when I discovered there was a leg in my connection, I didn't log on to fix it. I just let it stay there. And you know what? Do you know why? It's because I trusted the announcer's voice. I didn't think that he was going to lie. I know that his word preceded what would happen. And so I let him speak. And I waited. And I didn't worry. I celebrated when he spoke not when I saw what took place. What might appear to be a no, is it possible, in reality, is a wait? Because again, when God says no, it's because he has something better in mind, as Chuck Colson might remind you and remind me but out of verses 1 and 10, we get our arms around this thing, and we say as we consider God's strategic plan for humanity, we note the permanent dwelling place. You see that he has chosen. And so we stand there now, you and me, and we're looking at King Solomon's wall in Jerusalem and we're thinking about the first temple, and we're thinking about the second temple, and I'm thinking about Moshe Dayan and what took place. He, with a patch on the eye, in June 7th of 1967, standing uh, upon the mount, 
as the Israelis um, gained the territory. And then you look at me and you say, and Gary, I, I read about March 2nd, 1998, young babies being trained for service in the temple. As we look at the ruins of the second temple, and then you look at me and you say, Gary, is it possible that what we're really talking about then is a third temple next to the Dome of the Rock? I say, you got it, my friend. Because in Ezekiel chapter 43, while the man in verse 6 was standing beside me, Ezekiel tells us, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my temple and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Jerusalem is the epicenter of God's sovereign strategy. But no, that's one part of the puzzle. This is why I like to hang out in Jerusalem. But here comes, here comes the other part of this puzzle. Because not only have we considered the permanent dwelling place that he, God, has chosen representing the presence of God. But furthermore, out of 11 through 18, as we consider God's strategic plan for humanity, note also the perpetual dynasty he, God, has established. Ah, you pick it up with me, don't you? You're with me. We're in verse 11. David sworn to the Lord, no, the Lord, everybody's swearing here. The Lord swore to David, sure oath from which he will not turn back. And notice what he says. One of, your, one of the sons of your body I'll set on your throne. Hit the pause button. And in the book of Matthew, do the genealogy of Jesus Christ and trace the generations by which the sons of David, one after another, sat upon the throne, leading ultimately to Jesus Christ. And then you nod your head when you think about the fact that they were crying out on the streets as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And so if one of the sons of David, a subsequent king, walked away from God's will, God did not unknow the promise. Instead, that particular king was not the beneficiary of the promise, but he was still a transmitter of the promise to the next generation leading to Jesus Christ. So now you pick it up in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion, past, present, future. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. 
I will abundantly bless her provisions, so I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests will clothe, I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy, which is fascinating because all along that was David's strategic plan to make sure everything was properly put together for that major celebration, and he's not even here. It's Solomon, his son. But you see, God will bury the workman, but he carries on the work. You see? Because it's always and always about God. God is sovereign. And we keep that in mind as we reflect upon who he is and how he works and how he devises his strategies for his purpose and all, you see, all for his glory. You know, since the 16th, 15th century, kings of France, upon their death, would be buried in particular vault in France. And out in the streets, this proclamation would be made, the king is dead, long live the king. Which means that there's a successor. But the ultimate, the king is dead, long live the king, occurred when Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins, and three days later was raised from the grave. And you're thinking about this. You're reflecting upon this as you and I are standing among the stones in the outskirts of Jerusalem. And then we make our way to verses 17. And then again on into verse, verse 18. And here, three significant images come leaping out of these verses, the first of which, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. A horn? Where it says, the horn that will sprout for David. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, knew exactly what that was all about. When he prophesied of the Messiah in Luke chapter 1, verses 68, 69, quote, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, where whom? David. That horn power that will branch out is simply a messianic title, branch, sprout, that's used four times in the Old Testament pertaining to the one we know as Jesus. But notice the next word, lamp. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. Lamp? Uh, the title lamp had been assigned to David in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 17. And just as the lamp kept burning in the temple to represent God's presence eternally, so David's line would continue perpetually. It's all coming together for you. The dwelling place, the dynasty. Because the third of the three significant images in 17 and 18, you spotted it. 
His enemies are clothed with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And what strikes me about the word crown in the original language, it's netzah. It's used to describe the, the king, the crown being placed upon his head, but simultaneously it was also used for the diadem of the high priest. And when you and I begin to think about Jesus Christ, he is both king and priest, prophet, priest, king. And now we're awed as we think about the fact that on the cross of Jesus Christ, again, as we know, Pontius Pilate would have inscribed the words, king of the Jews, but he's about to die. But then three days later, Christ is raised from the grave. For you see, when God says no, it means that he's got something better in mind. And you better keep watching and keep waiting. So should the followers of Christ encircling that cross. And Chuck Colson would nod his head. After I, I mentioned to the chaplain at San Quentin how disappointed I was, a total lockdown, I had been planning, I had been preparing to share the gospel. I wasn't able to give my message to the men in lockdown. And he looked surprised. Chuck, Chuck, didn't anybody tell you? Because of the lockdown, the administration agreed to videotape your message. They will be showing it to all the inmates tomorrow on closed-circuit TV, morning, afternoon, evening, again and again and again. And when God says no, and you want to do something so significant for God, and for some reason, God has said no. Keep this in mind. It's because he has something better in mind. Let's stand together. For some observing the cross, they would have thought perhaps God has said no. But they needed to wait three more days. What we need to do, Father, at all times is to realize that like David, so often we have these incredible requests we're, being, we're making of you. Sometimes you say yes. Sometimes you say wait. But when it appears as though you have said no, remind us in the story of David, it's because you've got something better in mind. And we thank you for what you had best in mind. And three days later, you raised Jesus from the grave. And for this, we give you all the praise in Jesus' name.
Amen. God bless you.